Amen. Please remain standing and take out your Bibles if you have one or turn it on uh, and get to Nehemiah chapter 8. That'll be our preaching passage for this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform uh, that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masiah, and on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Henan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, we come this morning to one of the great stories in the whole Bible, and certainly the greatest part of uh, this book of Nehemiah. And it's so important, we're actually going to spend a couple of weeks on it. The first part of it we'll look at this week, and then uh, the next part next week. It's all about returning to the Bible. And when we think of returning to the Bible, many people today, and perhaps you're one of them, would have questions about that, and this passage is going to address those, those questions. If we had to categorize the questions, there would be two sets of questions, I think, today. Uh, the first would be, is it really believable? Is it really believable? Many people think the Bible is no longer credible. Uh, The second uh, category of questions would be, is it really practical? Many people in church life these days would say that holding up the Bible, reading it, teaching it, 
well, that's just so old-fashioned. It's not practical. Well, Nehemiah is going to address both those questions. Did you know uh, that uh, Time magazine did a list of what it took to be the 100 most important events of the last 1,000 years. And we could perhaps think through what would be on that list in our own mind of the most important events of the last 1,000 years, the last millennium. And according to Time magazine, number one on that list was the printing of the Gutenberg Bible in the 1450s. The most important event of the last 1,000 years, according to Time magazine, was the printing of this book and therefore its distribution. It's a very important book and we need to answer those questions. Is it believable and is it practical? And if we believe it is believable, then we need to practice it and uh, actually make that something that we commit to do in our own personal lives. So is it believable? Is it practicable? And uh, these uh, questions are answered in four movements in this passage. First the reading, then the teaching, then the understanding, and then finally the rejoicing. For a diagnostic as to whether we understand the Bible is whether we rejoice. We don't truly have joy, then we probably don't understand So far, first of all, the reading. This is verses 1 to 3. All the people gathered, verse 1, as one man into the square before the water gate. So they're outside. They're not in the temple. And the reason why is because the whole group of people are gathering. And it's too large a group to fit into the temple. And so a bit like we met over the summer outside in the parking lot. They're all meeting together. All all the thousands of them, all 3,000 plus of us together, including the children and the teenagers and all the rest, are all meeting together. And Ezra the scribe brings the book of the law of Moses, the Lord had commanded Israel. He brings out the book. When a preacher comes to preach, he needs visibly to have the Bible with him to indicate that this is the source of his authority. And Ezra brought out the book of the law. This law, uh, it translates the word Torah in Hebrew, which means teaching, refers to the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, which just means the, the, the first five books. But also in the Bible is used of the teaching of God in Scripture. So Psalm 119 is a great uh, alphabetic uh, summary and Uh, exaltation of the law of Moses, of the teaching of the law of God. And so we may say the Bible in uh, in our New Testament, as New Testament Christians, he brought forth the Bible. And uh, he uh, read it to both men and women and all who could understand. So there there are men and women and children. The dividing line as to who was in that assembly and who was not was based not primarily on age, but on whether they could understand. So there were not nursing babies there, presumably, because they could not understand, but there were children, by the parents' own uh, discernment, didn't want to exasperate the children, making them part of something they couldn't understand, but there were children there who could understand. And he read it 
in the presence of the men and women and those who can understand, verse 3, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, to the, to the Bible. They listened. And if we're to really understand the Bible, the first and most important thing is that we listen. If we assume that understanding chemistry, understanding physics, understanding math, understanding law, understanding business and economics takes attention to truly understand, then surely understanding God, the God of the whole universe, will require an earnest and careful attention. And they were attentive. So first of all, the reading of the Bible. Then the teaching of the Bible, verses 4 to 7. And Ezra the scribe, this is the, uh, the, the Bible teacher. He appears first of all now in the book of Nehemiah. Though there's a book named after him called Ezra. Well, we learn much more about him. He was a man who knew God's word, taught God's word, and practiced God's word. A great way of describing what preachers should be. They know the Bible, they teach the Bible, and they live the Bible. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. So there was a platform for the teaching of the Bible. And the reason for that is so that the Bible is visibly elevated as important, honored, visibly elevated, but primarily so that the Bible, when it is read and taught, could be heard. And when we think about buildings, when we think about the gathering of God's people, the most important thing is that we can hear what is said. Otherwise, what's the point? We gather around God's word. If we can't hear what is being said, the whole thing is a complete waste of time. And they build a platform so that he could be heard. And they build it for that purpose. And then there's this list of other people who help him. So Ezra is teaching. Uh, but there are others who are also teaching Mattathiah, Shema, and, and the rest of these uh, individuals who are helping him. And what we learn from that is that the teaching of the Bible is not only the job of Ezra. There are teachers who are called specifically to teach the Bible, but the teaching of the Bible is not only the job of Ezra, it is also the job of every believer today. In the New Testament, all God's people are priests. We are a part of the priesthood of all believers. We all are priests. We all have a ministry. And it is the task of us all to teach the Bible. We proclaim the gospel as a church. And our vision is that everyone will be proclaimers of the gospel. We would also be teachers of the Bible. Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 4, that when those who are specially set aside for the teaching of the Bible teach God's word, then the whole body will grow as we all speak the truth in love to each other. And that's not simply about correcting someone when they're wrong. That's how that phrase is often used in Christian subculture. have got to speak the truth in love. No, what that's really about is every single person discipling each other, teaching the Bible in Sunday school, teaching the Bible in Bible study groups and small groups. We are all to be proclaimers of the gospel. And that's how the church grows. 
when there isn't simply an Ezra, there's also a great list of other people who are active in teaching the Bible too. And he opens the Bible on the side of all the people and uh, he teaches uh, the, the Bible. But not only does he teach, he also prays. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There is not only Ezra speaking to the people for God, Ezra is also speaking for the people to God. And the preaching of God's word should always be married with a praying to and a praising as well. Many people I found struggle with figuring out how to pray. Here's a simple way of remembering how to pray in your own personal life. It's the, the word stop. First of all, you stop. You give praise to God for who he is. Lord, you're so amazing. I love you so much. You are wonderful beyond all comparison. You stop and remember who God is. Then S, you say, sorry, I'm sorry, Lord, that I don't live up to that standard. Then T, you thank him for he's done. Then O, others, you pray for others. Keep a prayer list of people to pray for on different days of the week. Monday, pray for this group of people. Tuesday, pray for your non-Christian friends. Wednesday, pray for the church or whatever, but a list that you pray for others. And then P, please, you pray for yourself. Stop. And then you pray. But remember, it's not simply a mechanistic list that you run through, S-T-O-P, stop, and you just do it. It's a dramatic, passionate prayer to God. The, all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. This is biblical worship. Not dry and boring, but passionate and committed to God. They bow their heads and worship their Lord with their faces to the ground. Lifting up your hands is fashionable in some church circles, but if it's to be, which is fine, you can, why not lift up your hands? They did. Lift up your hands in prayer, of course. Absolutely. But they also bow with their faces to the ground. That might be a good thing to bring back too. And so they were very um, involved also in the teaching of the Bible, all, all God's people. So we have reading, teaching, and then understanding, verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God. Why did they understand? Because they read clearly. That, I think, just simply means that they could hear what was being said. It was clear. And they gave the sense. That, I think, means they applied it. It could mean that they translated various parts of the Hebrew that perhaps they didn't uh, know because they'd been in exile and perhaps their Hebrew was rather rusty. Could be that. Uh, but I think also it means that they applied it. So biblical preaching, preaching from the pulpit, preaching one-on-one -on -one discipleship, whatever is our ministry of God's word, always should have application. This means that. This teaching in the Bible means that we should do this or think this or say this. We should give the sense. This is what um, the Puritans called plain preaching, which, by which they didn't mean boring preaching or preaching without illustrations. Actually, the Puritans had lots of illustrations. What they meant was it was straightforward, clear, and also gave the sense, had application. 
And therefore the people understood the reading. So we have uh, reading, teaching, and then understanding, and then finally rejoicing. This is verses 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the, the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. So here's the irony. We've just been told that they understand, but they don't really understand. So human, isn't it? We sort of understand, but then we realize we don't understand. And what they do not understand is that this is not a day for mourning. There is a place for repenting of our sins and indeed mourning for our sins, but not this day, says uh, Nehemiah and Ezra and the rest of the of of the teachers not this day this is a day for rejoicing why is it a day for rejoicing because at the beginning of chapter 7 verse 1 the wall had been built they'd finished the wall it's a day for rejoicing all that God has done isn't it amazing what God has done they are to be rejoicing and uh, the reason why they are to rejoicing is because this day is holy There's often the misunderstanding. We think that holiness is connected to moroseness and mourning, but not biblically. Biblically, holiness is connected to happiness. And the more holy we are, the more happy we will be. Because it is holy, they should rejoice. That's the biblical logic. Not because it is holy, we should be sad. That's unbiblical utterly. Because it is holy, rejoice. That's biblical holiness. In fact, they are to celebrate overtly. Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And we might uh, translate that as get a really juicy steak and a nice glass of claret and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready so when they celebrate as Jesus taught in the gospels when you celebrate you should always uh, invite those who are poor and they are thinking of those who don't have enough as well and our celebration should never be selfish we should be always caring for those who are impoverished around us Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Again, for this day is holy. So because it's a holy day, celebrate. Because it's a holy day, get a nice juicy steak and a good glass of claret. This day is holy. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And obviously they're not to indulge in gluttony, nor are they to indulge in drunkenness but they are to celebrate. Quiet, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Now, what is joy? Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, the Puritan, said that joy is the inward submission, the gracious inward submission and delight in God's fatherly disposal in every circumstance. That's joy. The gracious inward submission to and delight in 
God's fatherly disposal in every circumstance. What that means is joy is not about who we are. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. It's not about what we are. It's about what he is. And often Christians get this wrong. When they want to be joyful, they spend a lot of time thinking about joy. That's wrong-headed biblically. If we want to be joyful, don't think about joy. Think about Jesus. Think about God. That's where joy comes from. Why? It is the joy of the Lord, which isn't just a trite phrase you can put on a T-shirt. What it's saying is it's him. It's not what I have. It's not what I've done. It's not how holy I am. It's him. That's where joy comes from. Look at it like this. Imagine there are three men walking along a wall. And uh, one man is called Faith. Another man is called Facts. And the third man is called Feelings. And as long as Faith keeps his eye on Facts, then Feelings follows along. But when Faith takes his eye off facts and turns to look at feelings, then faith falls off the wall. Feelings are followers. You shouldn't ignore your feelings. They tell you something. What they tell you is where your faith is focused. And if your faith is focused on the Lord, on Christ, then the feelings of love, joy, peace, patience, and all all the rest... The feelings in normal, um, in normal situations, the feelings will follow. And that's what they do. They're told to rejoice because the joy of the Lord is their strength. In other words, joy is what makes a Christian and a Christian movement and a church strong. When a church is weak, it's because it is forgotten its joy. No one can work hard when inwardly they're split. They're not really that excited about that work. Partly they are, partly they're not. And a church can never be strong when it's partly excited about Jesus and partly not. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. And in order to have that joy, it's not about us. It's not about thinking about joy. It's about him. Our faith is focused on the facts. And so they and so they rejoice. So here we are. We've been called to return to the Bible in order to rebuild the wall. This wall has now in the story of Nehemiah been rebuilt. So I suppose we should say when we rebuild the wall, we should also return to the Bible. And they do that by reading, teaching, understanding and therefore rejoicing. Now we began by saying, is this practical and is this believable? One way of uh, discovering whether it's both believable and practical is by looking at the example of people who've lived this way. One such man was the great missionary Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was known to be a man filled with joy and filled with the Spirit's power. And when he was 70 years old in Lausanne, he was with his children 
And one morning he walked past one of his children and he said to them, this morning I have just finished reading the Bible all the way through for the 40th time in the last 40 years. He returned to the Bible every year, every day. And therefore he was filled with power, strength, and joy. But of course it requires understanding, doesn't it? And this is what Jesus himself taught in the parable of the seed and the sower. A man goes out to sow a seed. The word is taught clearly, giving the sense. And it falls on some good soil, but some not good soil. And the difference between the good soil, not morally good, it means good in the sense of receptive, attentive, In particular, Jesus says, understanding. The soil that produced the good harvest was the soil that understood. And so as we come to return to the Bible, we need to make sure that we, by God's spirit, are attentive to what is being said. And therefore, as we return to the Bible, we return also to joy. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for his example. We pray that this year we would return to your word this Christmas. We would read it. We would teach our family it as well, our friends. We would disciple someone this Christmas. We would uh, be involved in teaching in a Bible study group. We would read it, we would teach it, we would understand it, Lord. Open our minds that we might discern beautiful things in your law, in your word. And Lord, therefore, reading, teaching, and understanding, we pray that you would give us the joy of the Lord, that we would celebrate this Christmas, this Advent, because of all you are and all that you've done. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.